The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. My name is Amy Board, and I am one of the producers of Bloodstream Media and your host for today's episode. Today, we want to go beyond the numbers and talk about the impact of PKD. As you all know, PK deficiency is an underrecognized and often misunderstood rare genetic disease. Research has shown that hematologists need to have a better understanding of the burden of living with PK deficiency in order to treat. So what does that mean for patients? Well, today we're gonna to welcome two patients living with PK deficiency, Morgan and John, to share their stories about the importance of self-advocacy when it comes to PK deficiency care. Sharing your lived experience will help hematologists treat beyond the numbers and really understand and the true impact of PK deficiency on your daily lives. Morgan and John will join us in a little bit, but first, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Rachel Grace to give some insight on PK deficiency management. Dr. Grace was in episode five and is a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. She's the medical director of both the Hematology Ambulatory Program and the Hematology Clinical Research Program. Let's listen in. Dr. Grace, welcome back to the podcast. We're so excited to have you here. Second time around, huh? Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Grace, I'd love to start with you. What is the goal of PK deficiency management from a physician's standpoint? Well, the overall goal in managing the care of any patient is to optimize health and well-being and in caring for patients and families affected by PK deficiency. Clinicians aim to help keep patients healthy and feeling well every day. In patients with a new diagnosis, management might include education about the diagnosis, how it's inherited, understanding possible symptoms and complications, and strategies for monitoring and treatment. And monitoring really is a key part of management. Um, You want to evaluate for daily symptoms, changes in symptoms, thinking about psychosocial impacts and mental health, and for potential complications, including things like iron overload or effects of Um, hemolysis on bone density. Management also includes considerations around treatment, and that includes the role of transfusions, the role of splenectomy, the role of transplant, the role of clinical trials. And although some of the management is the same for every person with PK deficiency, for example, the need for monitoring for symptoms and for monitoring of certain complications like iron overload, other aspects of management really need to be individualized. And symptoms can really be quite different between patients or even in a single patient can change over time. And this means that management strategies will vary between patients, even if they have the exact same genetic explanation for their PK deficiency or even have the exact same hemoglobin. Can you explain more about the hemoglobin numbers? Why are they so critical to PK deficiency treatment? There are a number of labs that are monitored as part of caring for patients with hemolytic anemias. And Periodically, it is important to measure the hemoglobin or the red blood cell count, and this helps the clinician to know what is an individual's usual or baseline number, and so it can be recognized if the anemia has worsened compared to that baseline number, for example, in the setting of a virus or another illness. 
there are other labs that are important to monitor for besides the hemoglobin, the reticulocyte count, that's your youngest red blood cell. And that number tells you how the bone marrow or the factory for all the blood cells is working to make new blood cells. Another lab that's often measured is the bilirubin, which is a product of red cell breakdown. And that number tells you um, how much breakdown of red cells somebody's experiencing. And that can vary also in certain settings, like if somebody's experiencing a viral infection, which makes their baseline red blood cell breakdown worse. And having these numbers gives you a sense of the balance of things, how much red cell breakdown somebody's having and how much red cell production they're having, and that their balance of those two things is where their hemoglobin or their red cell number is. And in monitoring patients, these numbers are important to look at periodically, but obviously looking at somebody's symptoms and how they feel is the most important thing in evaluating how a patient is doing and if they're on a treatment, whether the treatment is effective. The hemoglobin becomes important for looking to see about treatments. If you want to see if a treatment is, is effective, for example, a blood transfusion, you'll want to know that the hemoglobin is increasing with the blood transfusions. If somebody had a stem cell transplant for their pyruvate kinase deficiency, their numbers should normalize. Their hemoglobin should normalize. They shouldn't be having red cell breakdown anymore. And so it's helpful to monitor those labs so that if something's worse in a certain setting, or you also know if a treatment is effective, in addition to, to asking the, the person and the patients about their symptoms and how things are going, I think the labs are a helpful correlate sometimes with, with talking with patients. So Dr. Grace, PK deficiency is often under-recognized and it's misunderstood um, as a rare genetic disease. And can you share some insights about how this in particular could affect patients? I think one of the major misunderstandings about pervic kinase deficiency that clinicians have stems from understanding about the, the glycolytic pathway, actually, and what people are taught as part of their medical training and medical school and their hematology, oncology fellowships. And pyruvate kinase deficiency as it stems from a decreased production of red cell energy called ATP. It's a process of that's, ATP is created by a process called glycolysis that happens in the red cell. And when you have a slowdown in glycolysis with a deficiency in pyruvate kinase, you have a decrease in that red cell energy, but you also have a buildup of some of the earlier byproducts of glycolysis. And one of them is called 2,3-DPG. And this level of 2,3-DPG tells your red cells how easily to let go of oxygen. And so in pyruvate kinase deficiency, the red cells let go of oxygen easily to the body's tissues. And this understanding about this, you know, kind of better release of oxygen into the tissues led to a study a long time ago of, of two people. One had pyruvate kinase deficiency and one had a different kind of hemolytic anemia and compared exercise between the two. And the person with pyruvate kinase deficiency had better exercise tolerance as compared with the other person. And this understanding of the pathophysiology, and I think to some degree that one patient-to-patient -patient comparison a long time ago has led to this belief that people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency with anemia don't feel as anemic as individuals with other types of anemia in a similarly low hemoglobin level. And so historically, medical students have been taught this, fellows have been taught this, 
And while it may be true for some individuals that people tolerate, some individuals tolerate a lower hemoglobin than one might expect, we know there's a huge spectrum in terms of how a low hemoglobin affects people who have RVA kinase deficiency. But I think this misunderstanding has led to clinicians having an impression that patients should feel well despite being anemic because it's pyruvate kinase deficiency and may be more hesitant to offer things like transfusions or other therapies. And I think in addition to that misunderstanding, I think also a lot of the long-term complications or potential complications of pyruvate kinase deficiency have been underrecognized just because it's been because it is a, a rare condition and it's been understudied. And so there have been historically fewer reports of what are the more rare complications too, like what to monitor for. And more recently, as patients have been participating in registries and we've been able to learn more about, about what the symptoms and complications are in different people, we've been able to understand better what is needed in terms of monitoring. And I hope this will help to improve care over time. So to turn it to like what the patient experiences of, of all of this in, in the physician's room, what have been some of your insights through your, there, there have been many things recently, the AAC white paper has offered insights. You had a paper actually that you co-wrote called the health related quality of life and fatigue in children and adults with pyruvate kinase deficiency. What have you learned in terms of what it has been like for patients, I think dealing with physicians trying to advocate for themselves in the physician room, what has what is that reality? I, I think especially through the the efforts of the AC and the white paper, we've learned that they're really profound and wide-ranging impacts on patients of having pyruvate kinase deficiency and listening to patient stories and experiences makes it clear that hematologists aren't always meeting patient needs and that we need to do better. And I think that is in the form of improved understanding about pyruvate kinase deficiency and optimizing monitoring and treatment, but also in making sure we're really listening to our patients and asking the right questions and in terms of hearing about the whole person and how pyruvate kinase deficiency is affecting them. I think one thing that's quite limiting in terms of our clinical care is that we haven't, we don't have great tools for evaluating how a disease affects somebody's quality of life. We can ask questions in the room, but we, in the research setting, often use tools like questionnaires that kind of get at some of these questions. And in the past, we haven't had good questionnaires for people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency to more formally evaluate how are you doing and how is this affecting your everyday and all the things that you need to do. And I hope maybe we'll be able to bring some of those tools that we use in the research setting into our clinical care so that we're more consistent about the way that we ask questions and people are asked more consistently about these different ways that the anemia might be affecting them. Dr. Grace, what does it mean to you to treat a patient beyond the numbers? I think this points to the issue that the hemoglobin or the degree of anemia does not tell you the whole story about somebody and doesn't tell you about a patient's symptoms. In hematology, this is definitely true for a number of conditions. You need to treat the patient and not the numbers. And I think this is an interesting question, but what do physicians need to hear from patients in order to make the best recommendations for treatment and to treat beyond the numbers? I would encourage everyone to be their own advocate. I, I think this is really hard. I think you get a limited time in the room. There are a lot of things that need to get discussed. It's you know hard to steer the conversation as the patient, I think, in the direction that you 
you want it um, to go in. So I think it's good to come prepared to your appointments with a list of things you want to make sure that you talk about and to make sure that these really are the things that are important to you and your every day and the way that the anemia affects you. I think it's important to make sure your doctor understands whether you can participate in all the activities and everything that you want to as part of your everyday life. Can you exercise? Can you go out for dinner? Can you spend enjoyable time with your family or in your place of employment or at school? And to tell your clinician about your mood too. I think it's part of being busy. I think that clinicians don't always ask comprehensively about all these different areas. And so it's important for patients, if they can, to come to their appointments prepared to talk about all those things and even have a list so that they can make sure that those things are getting addressed as part of their appointment. Thank you, Dr. Grace, for your time. I'm sure we'll circle back to you. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that is fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of investigational medicines for hemolytic anemias, including pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, thalassemia, and sickle cell disease. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. I want to bring in our patients here. John and Morgan have been living with PK deficiency. And I guess, John, I'll start with you. What resonated with you about what Dr. Grace said? What what has your experience been um, about being treated beyond the numbers? When I first got this disorder, when I was diagnosed, there wasn't very many people that knew anything about it. So over the years, I've had a lot of different doctors and went through the whole nine yards of the gallbladder. My spleen's been removed, went through all that. And when I was a kid, my dad, we had three kids and my mom and dad never babied me. And I participated in sports and excelled in sports and all that kind of stuff as I was growing up. A lot of my friends nowadays don't even know that now it's affected me more. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you're fine 20 years ago. Now it's changed. My life is, it's harder. I've had, I've got a heart. I've got AFib. I've got liver problems. I've got, continually got worse. So that's kind of been my story going into it. And it's been the last five years or maybe a little longer been a struggle for me. But I never been one to just quit. I don't know quit. So I do what I can to keep going every day. And the doctors, when I go to the doctors, they're like, oh, you're the expert, not me. When they, because I know all the numbers, I know quite a bit. And it's been, I've been helping the doctors along with this process. And like Dr. Gray says, it's, it's hard to get doctors to understand our scenario, what we go through every day. They just, they don't understand it. Most of them don't. But I've got a pretty good hematologist now and she's, she works with me to what my capabilities are. But yeah, it's just, you have to be your own advocate because the doctors just don't know everything. They try, but they don't know it all. If that makes any sense. 
That absolutely does. Morgan, I'll turn it to you. You're a college student. How has PK deficiency impacted your daily life? Yes, I am a college student and it affects my life in every single avenue. Um, there, I After I graduated high school, I would say I had a good spell. I was able to actually go to the campus for a year. And honestly, that has been the best school experience I've ever had in my life. I loved being with the kids my own age, interacting with them and the professors. I learn a lot better when it's in person like that. Nevertheless, it became way too much for me because I was already just weak and tired all the time. And it was just uh, too much uh, for me. And so for the last few years, I have been doing school online. And I'm very grateful for that because there's no other way I would be able to do school if it wasn't online. And as awful as COVID has been, during COVID, for example, they put their entire resources and effort into making all the classes available online because of the virus where you could not be in person. And one good thing that has come out of that is that I'm able to now complete my entire degree and required classes because they're all available online. With being online, I it still is a stretch for me. I'm only able to do one class a semester. But with it being online, that's something I'm actually able to keep up with. And as far as it affecting me on a daily basis, unfortunately, my world revolves around it. And just the fatigue and low energy, I, I have other health issues. So I spend, unfortunately, a lot of my time at doctor's appointments every week. So pretty much get, get out of bed do my daily duties of getting ready for the day, go out to my doctor's appointments, and then have to take a nap. So unfortunately, in that sense, it does control my life. But on, say, the weekends when I don't have doctor's appointments, I am able to, I can drive the dogs to the dog park, but that'll be pretty much enough for me for that day. I can drive my sister to get takeout and we can watch a movie a night, one night. But so, yeah, it's I try to interact as much as I can. But that includes missing churches, not being able to go to to get togethers. But so I know my body and I know when I'm able to do something or absolutely am not. Morgan, thank you for sharing that. Tell me about your journey, learning how to advocate for yourself in your physician's office, in your hematologist's office. When was a moment when you realized telling a story like that about how it affects you daily, about what you can do, about what you can't do, about what you want to do? What has that journey been like to realize the importance of, of telling your physician that in the office when you're asking for something that you need to feel better? Yes, I was first diagnosed with PKD when I was eight. So as far as advocating, 
it, it was up to my parents. And even I would say I'm an introvert. So it has taken me many years to learn self-confidence and to speak up for myself. And that has included in doctor's appointments with the physicians. And I would say the last four or five years, I've definitely, I, I'm, I can say I'm very sure in myself. And I just, Dr. Grace suggested, I will make lists of stuff I need to talk to my doctors with. Because sometimes I can feel a little peer pressure and I want to make sure I remember. And so, and, and I will say, the more I have grown more self-assured, the, the better advocate I've become. And I would say better treatment and care I have received because my parents can't really guess or know how I'm feeling. You know what I mean? That's that how that's how it was all the time. I was young and in my teens. But now that I am able to truly speak up for myself, the care has been more on point and better. And you just you I've learned that just is what you have to do for yourself. You not even the doctor knows how you feel. Your parents don't know how you feel, so who else is going to be your voice? You have to advocate for yourself. I think that's really important, and it took me a long, long while to learn that, but I would say I've gotten a handle on it now, and I have a wonderful hematologist, and I'm very happy. Oh, I wish listeners could see all the smiles in this room. We've got big old smiles. Morgan, thank you for sharing that. John, I'd love to hear from you. How do your symptoms affect your daily life is in the past few years. And what has your journey been to learn how to self-advocate in a physician or hematologist's office? Probably about six years, eight years ago, I started getting, I had to work, I got another job and I had to work, actually physically work a lot harder. And it would just, I'd come home at night, I was falling asleep on the freeway coming home. And so I actually decided that I'm going to try to get disability. And so I finally got, I filed for it and denied twice. And I actually had a, one of the a ladies on our PK group, she advocates for uh, disability. And she helped me out. She told me, don't listen to your lawyer. It's between you and the judge once you get your hearing. So anyway, I had my story. And I have to take a nap every day, just like Morgan says, I I take one or two a day. And so anyway, they gave me disability. So I now currently work another job and I work part time. But it just depends on every day. I don't have to go into work every day. I work from home and I make sales calls. But it's been a it's been a challenge in the last. I just don't feel like I used to feel. I just don't. Yeah, it's tough. The older you get, the harder it is. And a lot of my friends don't understand it because I said, like I said before, I was a ball of fire. I really was. I didn't let it slow me down. When I got 50, 52, 50, somewhere in that range, it really changed. Then I got macular degeneration, basically blind in my right eye now, which really slowed me down. John, can you describe the fatigue and how the fatigue in particular affects you uh, daily in your daily activities? Yeah. I mean, 
like our family, like extended family, like my wife's kids and they they like to, we go to the desert and we go hiking and I, I give it my best shot. I do is what the best I can, but they like to hike for an hour, go two or three miles. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. I just can't, I do what I can. I do pretty well for being almost 60, but I just don't let it, I don't push it. If I get tired, I stop. So there's stuff like that. Golf. I used to golf and I can still golf with the fatigue. I can get through a round, but my eye, I can't see good enough. So now that affects my, my play. So it's like, why go out there and hit the ball that I can't even see? And I do a lot of, my passion is ocean fishing, deep sea fishing. And I've been doing that all my life and it's become tougher and tougher because I can't, it's hard to reel the big ones in like it used to be. And I can't see the knots to tie them as well. And yeah, so it's the fatigue things. My wife even gets on me. She goes, you don't, you're not doing enough. You're not staying active enough. I'm like, okay, I understand that. But it's, I'm tired. I'm worn out. So that's what, where it's been for me. Have you told your doctor what has been the conversations that you've had with your doctor about? Yeah. Yeah. She wants to do some testing on my bone marrow, do a a biopsy of my bone marrow and stuff like that. Um, They also wanted to look at maybe doing a transplant, stem cell bone marrow transplant. She kind of said, nah, we don't really want to, you're a little bit too old for that, I think. It's risky or whatever. So I didn't do that. But yeah, I've told them and they they understand that it's just part of the disorder. So I try to get exercise. I try to do what I can. I try to stay somewhat busy, but I definitely get my nap in every day. It's just part of living with this disorder. I, I believe... I, I do believe that I knew this day would come. I kind of thought this would happen and it's happening. You just, you can't quit. You just got to try to keep moving, try to keep going. It's hard. It's not easy. Morgan, yeah. what about you? What are some activities that you wish you could do or would like to do, but the fatigue in particular is holding you back? I... It- even just, I always am sad to miss church. We have a couple church meetings every week, and nine times out of ten, I don't. I'm just too weak and tired to go, and I hate missing that because I love the fellowship and being there with the people. And just even when there are get-togethers with kids my own age. I really miss out on those. I those are hard because those are exceptionally fun, and it's it's good social interaction. It's healthy for me. But um, speaking of health, it's not not letting me feel able enough to go and do that. Just even just mundane things. Unfortunately, I have to have my sister and mom's help with doing my laundry because it can I don't feel like keeping up with it and it can literally get to the size of Mount Everest and so I have to have them help me with that and even even 
just mundane chores. I wish I could help out around the house more. My wonderful sister, she she does just about everything plus what I should be doing. So I'm always so grateful for her. But I, there are people who are in much, much worse situations than I am who are in the hospital. I'm not in the hospital. So I just have to take the good with the bad and be grateful for what I have. And I can't dwell on the can'ts and cannots and won't be able to's because then that just, it's just depressing. And I wouldn't want to, I, I wouldn't want to be around anyone that would be that down and depressed, let alone have someone else be around with me like that. Yeah, it's difficult, but it, it could be much worse. And so I am, I try and look on the positive side and I'm grateful for what I do have. So it's been like six, 16 years now that I've had, yeah, had a PKD. And over the course of those 16 years, I've gone through several hematologists. And I'm happy to say that the one I have now has been the best by far. So I'm very grateful for that. And so I I try, like we talked about, I try and advocate for myself. But with my most recent hematologist, it was like how you spoke about beyond the numbers I think I'm answering another question, but he was so focused on the numbers, regardless of the fact that I wasn't able to drive myself to my appointments and I had to take two or three naps a day. I said, hey, I feel rotten. My hemoglobin may only be at 7.4 and and hospital requires that it be at 7 to get a blood transfusion. But I said, I need it. I feel rotten. And he did not give it to me. And I gradually, symptoms just got worse and worse. And then I had to have my dad drive me to the, the emergency room. And by the time I was in the emergency room, it was at 6.4, which is the lowest it had ever been. And so thankfully, finally got that blood infusion. But I, I didn't continue care with him <laughs> after that. And I am, let me just say, I'm so happy and thankful for the hematologist I have now because she, I, I just, I, I tell her such and such, I don't feel good and she'll get me a, a blood infusion. So I'm very thankful for that, for sure. Thank you for sharing that, Morgan. I'd love to let Dr. Grace speak a little bit. It seems like this this is what the research is showing. This this is what insights are showing that it's at times can be difficult for PK deficiency patients to get the care that they need. And I just wanted to, from a hematologist, hematologist standpoint, how important is it to share these stories, to share these very personal stories that you think it wouldn't be a big deal? Like you just want to go to church. You want that fellowship. <laughs> I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is for hematologists to, to hear the stories, the, the exact way that you're telling them, the specifics of every day, what you can and cannot do to really have a good understanding of how this is affecting you and think together about how to make things better, to 
to not, as you said, just look at the numbers or have a specific hemoglobin threshold for intervention. It's incredibly important for hematologists to hear from their patients about everyday experiences. And I think this, the details of this, the stories really matter, even as you were just saying, having to have family help you with do daily chores that you have a meeting that's a few times a week and you literally can't go because you're too tired. You can only take one class at a time in a semester. These kinds of details, I think, are very impactful and, and I hope would lead a clinician to really trying to optimize things so that there's, it just feels like a lot of improve, room for improvement in terms of having the everyday be better and making sure that you have access to all of the new treatments that are coming along. I think that's where where things are are starting to be exciting and caring for patients for py- with pyruvic kinase deficiency is that whereas before we had splenectomy and transfusions and and now there are potential new therapies. And so I think it's important for for clinicians to hear from their patients these stories so that they can also think about what's new in pyruvic kinase deficiency, what should we be offering in terms of treatments that are available now that might not have been before? Are people eligible for trials in terms of the way that the disease is affecting them? I just want to thank the three of you for your time today. As we come to a close, John and Morgan in particular, I just want to thank you for sharing your story. I know that other patients and even hematologists are listening to this podcast, but patients in particular can maybe feel less isolated and less alone knowing that you have had the strength to share your story. So I just want to thank you. And as a means of closing, John, I'll I'll turn it to you first. What would be some of your words of encouragement to patients that are listening? listening about the importance of self-advocacy and telling your story to make sure that you get the treatment that you need to feel better? I, I think I probably am one of the older people that have had this disorder. And I was discovered, I was diagnosed at birth. As you can imagine, I've had a lot of doctors over the years and I've learned a lot from them. And I've learned that even though they're they're smarter than me with this disorder, clinically, they they're not in my shoes. They don't know what I feel like, and so the best thing that you can do for yourself is to not give up. Try to do the best you can, and then tell the doctor that I just can't do that. I just these are things that I can't do, and sometimes they don't understand it. Even when my numbers, like my hemoglobin at its high point now runs about 8.2, okay? It's about half of what the normal person is. And so I tell people, I tell my wife and my brother that they don't understand. I said, your your worst day is better than my best day. So that's, but you just, you got to advocate for yourself. And you'll get through it. Don't give up. It's not a, I've had a great life. I really have. So it's not a death sentence by any means. You just have to adapt and do the things you can and accept the things that you can't do. Yeah. John worded it perfectly, but yeah, have the confidence in yourself to self-advocate for yourself because no one else knows what it's like better than you. And even if it 
might seem aggressive or maybe a, a little bit cumbersome, try and make your symptoms and what you're feeling clear to your doctors. And one good thing is that there are so many hematologists out there. So you can always go to a different physician. Another thing is if you feel, I guess, hopeless, just think about, I guess, what you do have and that there are others who are in worse situations. Uh, Easier said than done, I know. But and another really good piece of hope is the fact how advanced medicine is. The technology is really beyond even that I can fathom. And that is so encouraging because I truly, I did not feel like there would ever be, and like John said, don't give up because there are, you just have to keep working at it. I, I would feel hopeless and there was nothing left for me, no other different avenues that could help me to feel better. But guess what? Here we are now. So I'm blessed. I'm grateful. And I want, I hope this can give some hope and encouragement to others too. Thank you to the three of you for speaking about this. I know that you will inspire hope in the patients and maybe even have a hematologist learn a little something from your stories to better treatment for all. We hope to have you back on the podcast. Dr. Grace, I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is K-N-O-W-P-K-deficiency.com. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking with you again.